Lock the doors. That's climate action now. This Prime Minister does not like scrutiny. The Labor Party is clearly embarrassed. This is a Prime Minister who cannot stand up for integrity. How good is Australia? Here, here. Those opposite are all smear and no idea. Hello, she's Fran Kelly from RN Breakfast. And she's Patricia Cavellas from RN Drive. And, and this, this is WOMAD Live with the Party, party Room. room. <laughs> Here in Adelaide. Hello, everybody. And before we get going today, we'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the country on which we meet today, the Ghana people, and honour their leaders, past, present and future. And happy International Women's Day, everyone. Get excited. <laughs> Woo! My favourite day of the year. It is your favourite day of the year. I'm In big, fact, I'm big on IWD. She's big on IWD. You haven't worn purple though, Fran. No, I didn't have a purple jumpsuit, so oh, look, I'm working on that. She is working on that. Look, the timing is serendipitous because our two party room guests on stage are actually two South Australian women of the federal parliament. Rebecca Sharkey and Sarah Hanson-Young will join us a little later. So... It's kind of themed, isn't it, really? Well, it's themed, yeah. We, we asked Rebecca and Sarah on last time if anyone was here. You remember we had Penny Wong and Simon Birmingham from the major parties. So we thought this time we'll share the love, love around a bit. Yeah, because they've got a lot of love, the major parties. Yeah, I mean, normally we're talking about pollies, not two pollies. You've got a million of them today. She's just going to keep rolling them Sorry. out, OK? Um, look... A lot has happened since... Put your hand up if you were here last year at this... For look at... I knew that. Good on you. I love games like put your hand up, so I probably do this a few times, one of my favourite things to do. Look, a lot has happened since WOMAD last year, Fran. Um, full mea culpa from us. Everything you heard from us last year was inaccurate and wrong. Wrong, wrong, um, wrong. So, sorry. Uh, thanks for tuning in <laughs> But we were the still. only ones that got it wrong. No, in fact, the everyone got it wrong. The posters got it wrong. The politicians got it wrong. In fact, I can reveal today that people I spoke to very late on Saturday from both major parties, major people... Major people. ..thought we were going to get a different result. So, hey, we were all wrong, yes, except for... Um, Scott Morrison. Yeah, he got he it right. He was right. He got it right. And he won the election and he backed himself. So, good on him. He gave himself a go and he had a go and he's having a go <laughs> right now. Um, how good... Oh, sorry. No. How good... <laughs> honestly, that, that guy knows how to um, win an election. So... That's what happened last year. Mia culpas are important. So we've done that. I thought it was important to be transparent with you. We've done that. I hope that you uh, still like us. Um, still trust us. Trust us and like us. I you like to be liked. You can trust us. Look, I want to have a little go. It's sort of like bingo, political bingo. ABC quiz. Like a quiz. Who loves the ABC quiz? Come on. Yeah, see? Yeah. It's like a quiz but um, more of a lame quiz quiz. About politics. It's called Complete This Sentence. Okay. I start it and let's see if you can finish it. All right. Okay? Okay. Um, we're going to meet and... Beat our Paris targets. That's it. Political bingo. Okay. I've, I've got one. I've got one. Hashtag Scotty. From marketing. Yep. Yep. Got it. And we've got more up our sleeves, but we thought we might involve the audience. You want to answer we? one? Okay. Just yell out the answer if you've got it. Okay. This one's really tricky. Okay. Um, it's not like I hold a hose. Who got that? <laughs> I if, thought... if I had a, you know, DVD or something, I'd give it to you, like in the real quiz show, but we don't. Yeah, because people watch DVDs. In fact, now that we're in the COVID-19, you're sitting very close to each other. Good on you. And um, this is a toilet paper-free zone, so you know. <laughs> And if anyone fights over toilet paper here, I will march them out personally, okay? You do not need toilet paper. You are fine, Fran. We're fine. They're okay. We're fine. I'm fine. So... I think. Are you okay? Yeah. Okay. But we're keeping two metres, if you notice. Uh, it's really good. Fran and I just talk to each other by kind of doing this now. Hey, hey Fran. PK. <laughs> PK, PK, I think we should um, take a seat. Yeah, I like sitting. And have a chat with... Each other first. Each other and a few hundred of our... Close friends. This is too far away. I'm going to come over here. Yeah, thank you. Uh, okay. Although you don't love that couch, do you? You prefer that couch. I prefer the power seat. She likes seat, the power seat. It's hard. I'm sure you're all very surprised that Fran Kelly likes the power seat. I'm sure everyone's like I'm scratching their I'm sure you're very surprised heads. that Patricia Carvella's got the power seat. <laughs> <laughs> boom, boom. <laughs> you opened up for that. I did. Um, so you probably know that usually with the party room, if you're regularly subscribed to it, if you don't, 
that's a flaw on your behalf and you should fix <laughs> that immediately. But we've just actually had an uh, episode that came out on Thursday. We come out weekly. We, you know, talk about the week that was. We're not doing that here. We're zooming right out. But get your phones out, hashtag the party room, tell your friends, subscribe. If you yep. don't know how to do it, PK has a home delivery service. You'll come down <laughs> and do it in your phone. <laughs> I, I will, with, and I'll wear she gloves. She has. I'll wear gloves and um, a whole hazmat suit. All right, l- l- let's get it happening because we're going to run out of time. Um, look, we want to start... <laughs> sort of like a co-host, sort of like a mother. Um, <laughs> we we want to start by acknowledging the horrible summer that so many of you had here in my home state of South Australia, particularly in Kangaroo Island and, and the Mount Lofty Ranges. The summer of bushfires was devastating for so many people here in this state and for so many people, particularly up and down the east coast of Australia. And that, that prompted a lot of really intense debate about not just about a lot of things really, about the biodiversity, about, but particularly about climate change. And that took about a millisecond to get politicised. And in fact, we ended up, we found ourselves over summer in the midst of the bushfires, also back in the midst of a very politically divisive debate about climate change. And in, a year ago, probably here in this tent, I'm pretty sure we were talking climate change because we were saying then that the last election was going to be the climate change election, Yeah, right? so we were meant to have the climate change election and I'm not actually sure we did have that climate change election that, again, we predicted. But if you look at the results across the country, and I know you all have been thinking about this to different extents over the last six months, eight months, what we saw was a really strong geographical divide on the basis of the climate change election, Fran. So Queensland responded in a way, I think, broadly, which was to say jobs were a priority and obviously the whole Adani campaign worked very negatively there in terms of anyone from the Labor side of politics being able to get get ahead. No, that's true. And in the inner city seats, there was a climate change push and people feel still frustrated by the kind of response they're getting from the government. People are frustrated and the politicians that represent those seats are concerned within the coalition. The very same divide is there in the party room that was there at the time that they tossed Malcolm Turnbull out because of this. So those inner city seats of, you know, Josh Frydenberg's seat, for instance, or um, um, I've forgotten the other seats. What's Katie... Uh, you're thinking about Higgins, Higgins aren't the seat you? of Higgins. Those kind of seats, they swung again, heavily against the government, but not enough to lose the seat, which is what Labor was counting on initially when it thought it would win that, that election. But I, I think Labor didn't have a good climate change election because at that point when they announced their policy and their targets, confident in the knowledge that they were going to meet and beat the government on all of these... Meet and beat. Meet and beat. Um, they didn't have an answer to the a fundamental question, which was what's it going to cost? Now, there is no real answer to that because it's a long time in the offing, but there is modelling and there is an obvious answer about what's it going to cost if we don't do it. I think what we've seen in this summer is writ large some of the element of what's it going to cost if we don't take action because it's cost lives, it's cost property, it's cost insurance costs going up for people. But that's the big question, is it? So the big question I pose to you, you can't all answer because that would be really strange, but is did the bushfire emergency change politics in Australia? Is the coal... I heard some people think yes. But do we have enough evidence yet that that's the case? I'll tell you why. I'm going to... It's a rhetorical question, my Yeah, friend. so I was about to I answer. have an idea about what I think there. I do think it's changed the political dynamic and I think what we're seeing is that Scott Morrison and the Coalition is very alive to the fact that this is an issue in different parts of the country and the fact that they keep talking about this roadmap, let's talk about the roadmap, the map and the road. The technology roadmap. The technology roadmap. We haven't seen it yet. We will very soon. And even that they're keeping on the table getting to net zero emissions by 2050, what Labor has now promised to do. It's still on the table. The door's open to do this. My prediction is they will never utter those words. And even when they go to Glasgow in November, there'll be a lot... That's at the next... The COP26, that's the next instalment of the Paris Agreement. Everyone's meant to come there to sign on to the next ambition, which is what what is the world going to do to keep temperature rises to below two degrees, preferably to one and a half. So we have to arrive at that table with a position. It was assumed we would sign on to net zero by 2050 because that is what's required to do that. 
I think what we're seeing from our government now, this is what I think, is that they're not going to do that because the coalition party room will not allow Scott Morrison to do that without it being very divisive. So he's devised the technology roadmap and, and the government's pitch will be, we're going to build it from the ground up. We've got the technologies. He is going to say we are going to do better than net zero by 2050. And that's what they're going to lay out. But I, I think that before we get to there, we've actually seen something this summer, PK, that we've talked about before on the party room, which is Scott Morrison has acknowledged that the sensibilities of the nation have changed over summer. And, and we've had the droughts, then we had the bushfires, and now the Prime Minister readily acknowledges that climate change has made the continent hotter and drier. And he admits that all the time. So the language but has changed new. a lot. That is new. And I think that is how politics has changed since that emergency. And we're seeing him acknowledge it all the time because he can't not acknowledge it anymore. No, that's right. It's like, duh. But um, it is hotter and drier and we have the longest drought you know, in however many centuries. And then we have the hottest bushfires because the land has been hotter and drier and the fireys will tell you that the heat and these, these fires behave very differently because of that. But it is a problem for the party room, like the joint party room with the nationals too. Now, all of you would have watched that um, spectacular, odd little thing that happened where the nationals had a leadership challenge. Do you remember that? I'm On sure the day was, the parliament was meant to be paying tribute to the bushfire yeah, that deaths. Was, that was awkward for Scott Morrison. But what that was about was not just about leadership ambitions. It was about climate change. That whole it, thing was yeah. about climate change. Yeah, it was a value struggle and they are determined to signal to their leadership and to Scott Morrison, but signalling to their constituents in Queensland in particular, that they are going to hold the line against what they call the left position on climate change or the virtue signalling on climate change. So Scott Morrison still has these struggles in his party room. He is not Malcolm Turnbull in terms of his, uh, his attitudes to this. He's not so trusting necessarily of the scientists, I don't believe, but he does know that something needs to be done because obviously the world and the science and the economics all point to one thing. I mean, business is way out in front of our government on this by and large. So that's where the technology roadmap comes in. I think what we'll see when it's finally revealed is that the technology roadmap, though, much of it will still be very wedded to carbon, to fossil fuels, and this is going to be a point of debate. I just want to go to whether you think... Anthony Albanese has taken a crazy brave risk by promising net zero emissions by 2050. Because on the week after he announced this, he was really under pressure in the parliament from the government. It was the first time where the government was able to say Labor is divided on this because Labor is having its own big debate, as you know, Fran, as we've been talking about on this issue. And again, are they making the same mistake they made during the election where they can't talk about how much it's going to cost or describe where the jobs will be. Yeah, I think, you know, I think... I'm a firm believer that Anthony Albanese had no option but to say Labor supports zero emissions target by 2050 because that's been their position for the last eight years. So why could they toss it out? The but science... should they have announced it with more detail, though? That's what I think. There's been a lot of pressure on them to not announce it yet. Anthony Albanese has been very determined, saying we're, gonna, uh, we're not the government, we're the opposition, we'll release our policies later when we're ready. But he felt under... He th I think he thought by getting out in front on the targets, he would put pressure on Scott Morrison to also come up with a position. I think he has put pressure on him. That's why we're getting the technology roadmap. But I, I'm surprised that Anthony Albanese, given what happened to Labor in the election, didn't have an answer to what's it going to cost. And the answer to that is, look at the modelling from Melbourne Uni, $22 billion in opportunity from switching to renewable energy. But this is the electoral reality. You can talk about opportunity all you like, but until you can explain how that opportunity material effects, materially affects people, where are the jobs? Will they get one of those jobs? How long will they have their current job? How do you yeah. transition them out? Until you give people detail, it's not actually that crazy that people worry, right? No, it's no. not that odd that people worry about their livelihood or how to feed their families. And but I if think you don't that's start... the lesson of the last election. Well, that's true. But if you don't start talking about it, if you don't get a goal set a goal and start working out the plan and explaining the plan and going up to these communities in the Hunter Valley or in Queensland and talking about it and developing the industries, then what hope? I mean, you can't you do it in You have to have a goal campaign. to get a goal and all of that too. You've got goals. All right, so let's just talk about what's happened before we let our first guest come on stage. 
after the bushfire crisis in a political sense because I reckon after the bushfire crisis the, real, the wheels fell off and the gloss came off Scott Morrison and his government. If you just think about the things that have happened, firstly there is the critique that he mismanaged the bushfire crisis and I think he's even admitted that he did some, made some big mistakes. I mean Hello, the cover-up over Hawaii, <laughs> aloha. Aloha. Um, A lovely place that it is. Haven't been there actually. Haven't Have you been, been there? No, no. no. But it's, it looks wonderful. But probably not a great idea to be uh, covering up the fact that you're in Hawaii during a big emergency in your own country. Um, that's a lesson for prime ministers in the future. The other part, of course, is mismanaging it, the way he dealt with people. Everyone said he was a great retail politician, but when he went to communities, he seemed to condescend or patronise or not deal very well with people. So there was that was a huge issue. It was really interesting. I mean, often these crises, and this sounds very cynical, but are tailor-made for a leader to emerge as a human being. Like Corona. We'll get to Corona. Um, you know, that's often what happens. But Scott Morrison, I think perhaps because of the pressure and the misstep over Hawaii, which he acknowledged was one, seemed to be on the back foot. It seemed like he had an empathy block. You know, he was grasping people's hands when they did, clearly didn't want to talk to him. Mm. The optics were really terrible for the Prime Minister, I think, and had, for the first time since the election, a lot of people going, who is this bloke? I thought we recognised this bloke, but... Actually, who is that bloke? So that shifted everything. We're far away from an election, but I think everyone went, hang on a minute, as you say, what's going on here? I don't like the way he's doing that. And I mentioned Corona to try to be funny because I like gags. But also, not that it's funny, but the way the toilet paper thing's funny. I mean, that's funny. But because I think what we're seeing now is the contrast. A Prime Minister trying to show that he's on top of a crisis. He's there every day. You can't, you can't get him away from a microphone and an announcement about this. And that's about contrast. It's about him trying to show that he is the leader for the times. Well, that's exactly right. Because I thought, and we made this comment during the bushfires, that where, I mean, I made the comment last year, why before Parliament rose for the year, did we not have a Prime Ministerial statement about the people who were already losing their lives or losing their properties, certainly by that stage, in parts of Queensland and northern New South Wales? There was no fire statement. Why did we not have the Prime Minister, once he got back from Hawaii, standing up every single day like we had the Fire Commissioner, giving a message, bringing people up to date, reassuring the nation, acting like a leader? And I think the reason we didn't was because the Prime Minister was trying to not get dragged into that climate change debate to far because he hadn't sorted out the politics within his own coalition. They were so messy for him. So now we've got, I'm sure you're all over this, the sports rorts scandal. Sports rorts, 100 million bucks, pork barrelling, like not... not Like you wouldn't believe. Like <laughs> amazing large checks, which we'll talk about later. I have one behind. Incredible stuff, but again, what we're seeing is a new formulation from the government avoiding scrutiny on this, and I feel very confident saying that that's what's happening, because we have lots of evidence that's emerged that the Prime Minister's office uh, did have a, a role, essentially, in liaising with the Sports Minister's office about making some of these decisions, or at least there was one key uh, change that was made at the last minute. And yet, when the Prime Minister is asked, and I think this needs to be called out by journalists, and I'm certainly going to do it, he says, I'm dealing with COVID-19, I'm dealing with corona, I can't take that question. And so we're dealing with a paradigm now where scrutiny is very difficult to deliver on what I think is a very serious issue about public spending and accountability. Yeah, no, that's true. And we are dealing with a Prime Minister who is clearly determined to try and control the narrative at all costs and only be accountable when he wants. And the biggest example of that was with the preacher, the... Um, the Hillsong, Hillsong pastor. preacher, uh, Houston. Uh, that was the first clear evidence of that, but we've seen it again and again. And Sports Rorts is the only... is the latest example of that. And it took Senate estimates for public servants to come out and basically sort of blow the lid off that. But the Prime Minister still, as you say, just two days ago in a coronavirus conference says, I'm here to talk about COVID-19. That's the crisis. And it is a crisis. There's one other part of that before we go to our guest. Our first guest will be on very soon, and that's the economic fallout from all of that. Now, I'm personally very glad to see you all thriving in the economy, getting out there, not being afraid to go out. But the economy is... Having a hard time, Fran, because of this crisis. And as a result, that kind of risks people's jobs and livelihoods. So the government's now developing a stimulus plan 
to avoid a recession. Now, if they are to have a recession on their watch, that'd be like... What would even happen well, if they ago, were to have a recession on their watch? A year ago, remember, they were back in the black. Uh-uh. They were never back in the black. Did Who you bought, get a mug? I was just going to say, anyone here got the coffee mug? No, I, I thought not. Um, no, no coffee mugs here. They put out coffee mugs They'd saying back in the black. They'd be worth more than toilet paper, I reckon. Now they're a little embarrassed about that. Um, but the government got ahead of itself. It... It, it determined to stamp its credentials, its economic credentials, in contrast to Labor. That was, we are told in the um, post-election analysis, the promise of delivering a surplus was a major element in their victory in having an edge over Bill Shorten in the last election. It played a big role. They are not going to deliver it, almost certainly. They're but not going to deliver it. Because they couldn't see this coming, Fran. Well, and fair enough. They That's couldn't what they see say. It coming, but Is they that couldn't believable? see it coming. Well, of course, they couldn't see the pandemic coming, but the fact is that they were counting their chickens. That's the problem. And they haven't left themselves an out. And now they will pay some kind of price for that. Though I do believe the public more generally will be forgiving of a government who doesn't deliver a surplus in this time. I think that's right. Now, just letting our organisers know that I think our uh, clock's not working, which is okay, why... OK, it's time we, to go. We, but, but this is time to go. Yeah. Uh, so see you later. Not Catch go. you later. No, no, no. <laughs> as much as I would like to hang out with Fran Kelly all day, which I do. In fact, we were hanging out last weekend, Fran. We're making this a thing. We should get our first guest on stage. Now, it's a very South Australian party room today. We've got Centre Alliance MP Rebecca Sharkey and Green Senator Sarah Hanson-Young. But just an announcement, there's a bit of a change of plan because of the news cycle. And you know we're journalists, we respond to the news cycle, and that's what we're going to do today. There's a serious matter that involves Sarah Hanson-Young, and on Friday it was revealed that she'd provided a character reference in the ACT court for a man charged with slapping his wife. And he was a friend and a supporter. You may have read some of the stories. If you haven't, I'm just giving you uh, sort of the bare bones of this story. And he'd pleaded guilty to the charge too. Uh, according to the senator in her reference, not only did she believe him to be of good character, she also believed him when he and his wife said this was the first time anything like this had happened in the relationship. She also told the court she agreed to provide the reference because the man's wife had asked her to. So... This story, of course, given she's been such a high-profile campaigner on issues around domestic violence, is a difficult story, and I think it's important we ask some questions of Sarah Hanson. And it's difficult at the timing as well, because the country's in a debate at the moment after the horrific murders of Hannah Clark and her three children burnt to death uh, on the streets of suburb of Brisbane. You know, we're very alive to this issue as we ha should be and as we have been for a long time now, with one woman a week in this country being killed by a current or domestic partner. But Sarah has agreed to come in today and answer some questions about this matter, about why she's done it. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people here have strong views about this. We won't be able to canvas all of your concerns, but we will ask some questions. It is, you know, it's not a light-hearted conversation, so if you've got kids with you and you want to wander off for 10 minutes or so, please feel free to do it. Um, but right now, could you please welcome Sarah Hanson-Young, Green Senator. <laughs> I like how you do that. Centre yourself. Centre yourself. yourself. Very good. Now, Sarah Hanson Young, thank you very much here. for coming. And as we explained, we did invite you uh, before this story had broken. Um, yes. But this has changed the conversation, and I just want to be really transparent with everyone here and all of the people who listen on the podcast as well. Now, we invited you before this story broke, and it's angered many people, you know that. Mm -hmm. It's uh, from the left to the right, the progressive side, uh, the conservative side. People say you're being hypocritical after this was revealed. So my big question is, why did you do this, given the strong comments you've made about domestic violence? Why would you provide a reference for somebody who, who actually admitted that he was a perpetrator? Yeah, that's a really good question. And firstly, can I just say... <clears throat> I've been, on, I've been sick all week and I've been told I shouldn't worry, it's not corona. Um, but but you with, never know. But you never know. <laughs> Don't come and shake my hand afterwards. Um, look, it's a really good question. And I did it because the woman involved at the centre of this asked me to. I did it because she... And she's been left out of this conversation. Today is really the first opportunity... Um, for her to have her point of view put across. And I think 
That often happens in these cases, and particularly when they get debated and discussed so publicly. And so I just, I actually, she knows that I was coming here today. She is a dear friend, husband is a friend, and she, she knew I was coming and she didn't want me to talk about it. She's been re-traumatised through this debate and this discussion, um, as you would be, having strangers talk about your life, strangers talk about your marriage, whether you made the right decision, judge you without knowing the facts, without understanding the circumstance. So she, she pleaded with me. She didn't want me to come up here today. Um, but I'm a politician and... I know that I have to be responsible for the things that I say and the things that I do. Um, but I did promise her that I would read. She's written something and I, I did promise that I would convey that because she, her voice has been left out of this so far. Um, she said, what my husband did was very wrong. And he acknowledged that by pleading guilty in court. Sarah has been a long-standing friend of both of us and she has done nothing wrong by stating her opinion of who she believes my husband to be. Her statement does not condone his behaviour in any way. I understand that there is interest in this case and domestic violence is an issue that needs to be discussed and interrogated. But I need privacy to deal with my personal circumstances in my own way, with the interests of my children and myself foremost. I ask that our family circumstances are not discussed further. Now, it's hard for me to, um, it was a hard conversation for me to have to say to her, I know that's what you want, but this is a conversation that's going on and I'm going to have to answer some but questions. Sarah, but they invited but you because of your name to give that reference, Sarah, so they actually invited you I, because I was, of your public standing. I was asked um, by the woman um, to give a reference and I think we need to be clear about the process here because I've seen a lot of the commentary and comments about this and I think there is a bit of a confusion about um, what happened. He slapped her and he shouldn't have done that. It's an appalling thing to do. The police were called, he was charged and he, he fessed up and said, yes, I did do it. He pleaded guilty. And so when you've pleaded guilty, you're convicted. And the next stage goes to the sentencing. And so that's where the character reference comes in. So I was asked to provide an honest account of what I know of this man, of what I know of behaviour, his character. And so that is what I did. And I wrote um, this, the statement of character, or the character reference, um, with a view that I was talking to the judge because that was the person, that was the audience, that was the person who was meant to read it. I was naive and I fully admit this. What Did do you, you mean when you say you were naive? I was naive to think that a, that something that I had written, something that I had said in a private matter, a private family matter before the court, would get public circulation and be used publicly. Sure, okay, but what about what you said within that? I mean, you've publicly, on the record, said a number of times there's no excuses for domestic violence, but the character reference you provided to the court looks like there are excuses. No. I mean, is there, a, you know, are you no. now saying that there are excuses sometimes? No, there's never an excuse. I'm very clear about that. There's never an excuse. He pleaded guilty. That is exactly what he needed to do. It's what he did. And he is guilty. He should not have done this. And his behaviour needs to change. I just what, I, what I did was give a understanding from my perspective, alongside her, the woman at the centre of this, she also wrote a character reference and didn't... You know, in the midst of all of this, the victim here often gets so far left behind the process... And she asked me to help amplify her voice. Yes, but Sarah, this is just the issue, isn't it, Sarah, that the police have intervened and that's because we now are treating it as a serious issue, that women do 
often, I don't know the statistics, but mm. come and defend men who have been perpetrators of violence against mm. them, right? Yeah. Does that mean that changes your role? I mean, why would you still dis make, decide to make that decision when ultimately but he was, women he, do he, decide to defend their husbands? That doesn't make what they did right. That doesn't mean that the husband should be... His reputation should be saved. Well, he pleaded guilty. He was convicted. He did this. And the next step is the process we have in law where the judge decides what the punishment should be. And what my friend was confronting was her husband losing his job. Everyone in this small community that they live in knowing that despite the fact that this had happened, she had decided to stay with him, to reconcile with him, to deal with that. That's and, right, Sarah, but this is, I mean, she, this is tough. She has, the, she has the right to make that decision. Yes, but if and you write in a she, character it's reference... It's her choice. Let, let, me, let me put your words out there. You've said, as someone who works in politics, I understand what reputation means in public life. In my view, a criminal conviction would have severe and unwarranted impact on his reputation and consequently on his work. Now, shouldn't it have impact? Shouldn't it have implications and consequences for him? Well... And it, and it has, and it does. How has well, it had consequences? Well, he has had to confront his bad behaviour. He has had to uh, commit to dealing with his bad behaviour, changing his behaviour. And the, the person in the centre of this is the woman who has been left out of this, this, deci is, of this decision. I do and I want, I want to make sure her view and her desire to... If she wants to keep her family together, if she wants to do everything she can to, to, to move on for her life, that needs to, that needs to be respected okay, But too. anyone who, who has covered domestic violence is a survivor of domestic violence and I, you know, I know this is a triggering conversation for people but many of us are. Yes. So anyone who is knows that this is a really, really difficult and layered issue and what when you said in your reference that you know he won't reoffend how well, I didn't I didn't say that well you I, you, you, you said the man he has the man has told me he has no intention of reoffending and given what I know of his character I am confident no reoffense Fran's will always occur. got the facts but you did and that's the same no. thing but what I want is uh, there's a really specific question on this that how is do you I, know that is what how I, do you know because this is the thing about domestic violence mm. you don't know you mm. cannot know because what happens in the home is yeah. not the way men represent themselves at our workplaces. They behave differently in the home. Yeah. And this is why there's a scourge of domestic violence. If they were to behave like that at the workplace, they would be locked up and they're not. Yes. Look, I don't know for sure. What I know is based on his character. And based on... And that is what I was asked to um, reflect on. That is what I wrote to the judge about. That based on his... What I know of him as a person knowing that he admitted what he did, that he pleaded guilty, that he was standing up and taking responsibility for it, that the wife, the woman, my friend, believed and wants to believe and wants to work with him uh, to reconcile. And that's what I know. That's, it's based that's... on his character, what I know of his character. No one can say, but I tell you what, when I was asked by this woman at the centre of this, to believe her, to stand with her, to give her a voice in this, I did. I, I, I wished I hadn't been asked. Well, why didn't you I say would, no, you know, though? Because, Patricia, I have spent my life standing up for the right for women to be heard, not turning my back on them. And when a woman came to me, a friend of mine who trusts me, I couldn't turn my back on her. But Sarah, in doing that, given who you are, you're a feminist, you're an outspoken woman on this mm. issue of domestic violence, you are a senator in the Australian Parliament. In standing by your friends, were you not standing by the tens of thousands of women and children who are subjected to violence in their own homes? Mm. You know, I have spent... I am rock solid on 
condemning violence against women. It was the wrong thing to do. I'm also rock solid on empowering women to be able to make their choices and to have their voice heard. And when I, I didn't do this because he wanted me to. I didn't do this because he asked me to do this. I did this because she wanted you me to do this. You used the word before naive. You said I was naive. Uh, now, of course, I mean, anything you do as a politician often ends up in the public sphere. I said to my 10-year-old before, anything you put in writing, by the way, will become public in your life. Just know it. I mean, it's one of those lessons of life, right? Mm. So you put it in writing, it's become public. I would argue it was always going to be thus. Do you regret that as a feminist figure, mm. that you have sent a message, one you contest, but one I tell you I have, I have seen it from the left to the right, that you've sent a message to women that some violence perhaps is permissive? So, um, when I, I, I did get cut off when I, wanted to, when I was talking about being naive, and I, I want, and thank you for coming back to it, because I, I want to clarify this, and I want to be really clear about it. I know that... Because this has been circulated in the public realm and it's been reported the way it has and it's been... Uh, what was written for one particular audience has now been seen as my statement uh, on violence. I totally understand and I know why people are disappointed. Um, I never intended that to be the case. I intended to support the woman at the centre of this. And that is what I did. You know, do they regret asking me? No, they're not having a pretty good time right now. Do you regret writing it? I, re I wish I hadn't been asked. But if, I, if I'm absolutely honest with you, Patricia, I, I, I couldn't... I don't think that if a woman came to me who I know, who I trust, who trusts me and asks me to help give her a voice because she's been silenced and left out of this. Would I turn my back on her? No, I would not. I think women are so often left out of this conversation. Why is it about what he did, what, how this impacts on him? What about what Be it means for her? Because it's a crime, sir. Yes, it is a crime and he admitted it and he pleaded guilty and so he bloody well should have. So he bloody well should have. But in this conversation, so often the, the, the woman, the victim at the centre of it, you don't think her life's been turned upside down by this? Of course it has. And every time she has to think about what, whether she wanted to leave or not, if she wanted to leave, I would have helped her leave. And maybe one day she will. And I will help her leave. Just finally, Sarah, because we will bring in our other guest in a moment and broaden the discussion, but just finally then... Do you have a message for all the other women out there mm. who've read what you said and feel that you have not honoured their position and the positions they've been fighting for and the position from the police they've been fighting for and the situations they're in? Do you understand that? Yes, I do. And um, what I have um, done, the, when I wrote this reference when I agreed after being asked to do this, and I thought long and hard about this, that where, where are my values in this? I mean, some people would like, some people want to think, and, and I can see this, that, oh, well, um, Sarah stood up for women's rights, she's done this, she's done this, but her mate came along and asked for a favour, so all that went out the window. And that is not what happened. I did this because she asked me. I did this because... She wants to... Okay. She was acting in the best interest of her family. But are and, you also... And, and can, I, no, I just want to finish this question from Fran because I think this is really important. For any woman out there, you that may be in this situation, that has been in this situation, we all need to work better to make sure you actually have real choices for what it is that you need to do to protect yourself to make a choice that's right for you, for your family. You know, there is so much but that's judgment. exactly why the police have the power now yeah, to the police launch have... domestic violence orders because to and make the, sure the, the court, woman has the, the right. And the court and the court makes the decision of what happens when somebody's found guilty. The police are absolutely essential in this, of course, and the court system is important. But we have a justice system. 
And (laughs) women need to have a voice in that system too. Taking the once the police are called, saying that the woman doesn't have a right anymore. Um, well, for far too long we've silenced women, and we have to make sure we give them every opportunity, every support to make the decision that's right for them. If she wanted to leave, she should have. And I know so many people don't have the ability to do that, and it's not safe to do that. It's often more dangerous. And some women want, and a lot of women just want the behaviour to stop and they want to be supported in being able to make that decision to keep their family together and not be judged because they didn't leave. Okay. Well, Sarah Hanson-Young, as we said, we expected a different conversation. But we do appreciate that you've taken our questions on this issue. And and I just want to... I I know this isn't easy. I really know this isn't easy. And I don't... don't, these, These issues are so complex... Individual cases are different. Um, A woman trusted me to help her. That's what I did. I just, it's the suggestion, um, and and I hate to think that anybody out there would think that, um, a woman who wanted to keep her family together and me supporting that somehow undermines um, the ability of others and the right of other women to make other choices. Absolutely not. I it suppose is your the choice. difficulty it is, is before choice. we let our next guest yes. come in, the difficulty is that the, the message is that if violence happens, the relationship can still be rehabilitated and sometimes people find that troubling because violence often ends in more violence. Well, and that's true. And... I think that's where the shame comes in, doesn't it? Because women get judged for their choices. And no, but the man needs to be judged for his actions, oh, Sarah. The man At the needs heart to of be this, your reference was he for was the man. He was the perpetrator. The, the man was charged. The man pleaded guilty. The man was convicted. He, he, was, given, he was given a sentence by the judge. Um, that's, that's up to him. That's, you know, there is... There are two things I've always said in these circumstances. Believe the woman and listen to her. Give her a voice. And secondly, if you are a man who has done the wrong thing, own it, confront it and say sorry and apologise. Deal with your actions. If he had not done that, there is no way in hell I would have even considered being part of this process. Okay. Well, Sarah Hanson Young, people can make their own determinations about the way you handled it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Now, the way this conversation was going to be before Sarah subjected herself to Fran and I at the same time, which is quite something, uh, but you did, uh, is we're going to invite Rebecca Sharkey on. Now, she's the member for Mayo, Centre Alliance, and get the party music going. Let's Here bring in the party music. <laughs> <laughs> you like the pillow? I do. You like the pillow? I like a pillow to prop me up. Rebecca, thank you, thank you so Rebecca. much for being with us. Pleasure. Now, we got here, you here today too, uh, just in time, very timely, because you were actually, and your seat of mayo in that campaign, at the absolute epicentre of what's now become the sports rorts affair. Because yes. anyone cast their mind back to a giant cheque that featured in the seat of Mayo, but it wasn't the member for Mayo who was holding the cheque. It was the candidate, the Liberal candidate for Mayo, Georgina Downer. Now, um, this it was, is correct. It was that image that prompted the issue to be referred to the audit, the audit office, and we have now ended up in this report. Mm. So, where, what do you make of where it's landed? Well, I don't think Cathy McGowan, when she wrote a letter to the Auditor-General, expected it to go this far. And, and while the cheque was presented in Mayo, and it was prior to uh, the election being called, um, so it's a very unusual circumstance. Normally, um, the duly elected member at the time does get invited yeah, to normally. be... Yeah, <laughs> you know, part, part Often the candidate's there as, as we're getting closer to an election. But it was quite unusual, and I think that's what piqued the interest of the media... 
But it wasn't just happening in Mayo. Um, in Cathy McGowan's seat, Cathy um, was retiring uh, in Indi, in Victoria, um, but she was noticing the same thing happen in her seat and it was making her um, rather irate. And many of you would know um, Cathy did a lot of work in the last parliament um, with respect to a National Integrity Commission uh, and also a code of conduct for for members of parliament, which we, we haven't quite been able to no, enact we'll get yet, to but that. we like that. <laughs> um, and so she wrote to the, to the Auditor-General and, and really things have have snowballed from Can there. Can I ask you, um, Rebecca, because recently the what's happened, the way it's unfolded, the, the minister has lost her job, well, she was allowed to resign, or forced to resign by the, after the Gaetjens report, the Senate Th tried to get that... the woman under the bus. Well, they, the Senate tried do. to get the Gaetjens report produced to the Senate. Um, as I understand it, you didn't. You and your party didn't support that. Pauline Hanson told the Senate that you personally urged her not to support the forced production of the Gaetjens report to the Senate. Why? So it wasn't um, a position about not producing the report, and and we have supported an inquiry every step of the way. Um, there was a concern uh, with Sterling Griff and myself. We both shared the same concern that it was a personal attack on Matthias Corman. Uh, and also uh, that it would set a precedent that any majority in either house could forcibly remove a, mem a member. So Pauline Hanson could be removed from where she sat, um, Matthias Corman, myself. Um, so, um, so it was the second else. part so of the we, motion that exactly, you objected to. Exactly. Look, we have and we continue, we supported the extension uh, with respect to the inquiry. Um, we will continue um, to support any way that we can have open um, and, and transparent um, uh, review of, of this whole matter. But, but I think personally that this particular program and how, how this program um, uh, played out, how, how, how the money has gone and, and what we've seen with, with changes that we believe happened potentially in the Prime Minister's office after the election was called, I think that there will be a number of programs that need to be reviewed, particularly uh, around uh, all of the regional Building Better Regions funds. Well, I think there's, there's at least whole, four funds now mm, implicated a whole in lot this. Of funds in relation to um, the environment and protecting the environment that was seemingly wrought. I've written to the Auditor General about those, so it'll be very interesting to see when that comes back. Mm. There's a very clear difference. Where does it go, though? Right? So there's a Senate committee, you're probing, there's going to be evidence from Bridget McKenzie and others, but where do you go with that, given the Prime Minister now says, you know, he's focused on COVID-19, he won't take questions. Where does that leave you? Well, it, well it, it leaves you in a very difficult spot because if you see question time, you are, you're asked, you know, question after question is after, asked of the Prime Minister and, and we just get one word, no answers, and he sits down again. Mm. Ultimately, the decisions will be made by the community at the next election as to whether they like this style of representation. Jackie Lambie told me something which I thought was really distressing, which is that she, I said, how's it registering with people that you speak to in Tasmania? She said, I don't think anyone's listening to a word we say. They're not interested in a word we say. They don't trust a word we say. So to be honest, I think it's not really registering out there. So a government would feel, if that's the case, under no pressure over this. Do you agree with that? Sorry. You go first. Oh, I was going to say, well, I think that's why, though, I, I don't necessarily disagree with that because I think people have absolutely um, lost faith with whether politicians, the government, stand by what they say. Well, they're not listening, are And they're they? not listening. They've tuned out. So our job, as the other parliamentarians in that place, particularly in the Senate, our job is to hold them to account because just because the public may have just gone, you know what, you're all a bunch of so-and-sos. Um, you know, actually, I'm running down the shop to buy my toilet paper. Um, you know, our job uh, is to hold the government to account. So I, I think we need to find uh, new ways. And I, I know, you, you know, Rebecca, the Centre Alliance didn't support that motion in relation to Matthias Cormann. But if we don't start holding the government to account um, in the chamber... Um, you know, we're not doing our jobs. What about holding them to account in the International Integrity Commission? Yes. I mean, Absolutely. Is, that, is, is that... If that was in place, would that have real teeth? Because as I understand it, the one the government's proposing, 
this sort of scandal wouldn't even be eligible to be referred to it because it needs the high bar is a, a criminal activity, which this is not. Mm. So, so we're going to need to look very carefully when the government eventually introduces their legislation as, as to whether we can strengthen the legislation using the Senate. Um, from what we've heard from, um, from Christian Porter, it will be a very narrow integrity oh, commission. It would, have, it would have let them off on the, the sports rods. It wouldn't even deal with that issue. No. It could. I mean, it's, the, and, and the model the government has wouldn't. Yeah. That's right. I, no. They're not interested in probing into themselves. And this is a, this is a government who um, says, and a Prime Minister who says every time there's a difficult question, every time, uh, you know, it's in the bubble. Oh, journalists are just asking about that because only journalists care about it. Let me ask you two from minor parties. Do you think we will get a National Integrity Commission? Do you think the major parties will allow that to happen? I think we will. I think Labor's supportive now. But, I mean, if we go back to when I was first elected, um, the only ones that were talking about any sort of integrity commission uh, were the Greens and the crossbench. Mm. We've now moved to... And initially, um, the, the Prime Minister and the government said there was no need, I think... Historically, Anthony Albanese was not was lukewarm towards an integrity commission, but we've now seen a movement. Now we just need to make sure that what is implemented actually has some merit. Yes. Rebecca Sharkey, I'm intrigued to hear too, if I can shift the conversation before we take some questions from our audience, about the way that the crossbench is now working. Because it seems to me you're a loose alliance and you work very closely together to, to hold the government to account. What does that look like? Are we talking lower house here? Yeah. Yep. Okay. For you. So, so if you think, if you think of the lower house, so when we started forty fifth parliament, we had five. We ended with seven. We've started uh, this parliament with six. I'm hoping at some point we might be able to expand it. But, but you have a very broad church. You have Bob Catter on one side. You have Adam Bant on the other. And yet we are quite collegial. So we don't necessarily all agree. Um, we don't um, work collectively on every issue. Um, but we do carve out time. Um, we're, not, we're not competitive with each other. We share out the time evenly. Um, we're respectful of each other. And I think that, that a lot of our behaviour is what I'd like to see more broadly right across the parliament. Before we let you go today, yeah, everyone wants that too. <laughs> it's funny how much the electorate wants the parliament and the politicians to be working together, and yet the politicians, it gets more and more divisive, more and more um, left and right to the extremes, and there's so much less of that. And yet, every time you mention it, you get a, a round of applause like that, the thought of parliamentarians working together. Just finally, before we let you go, perhaps we could ask both of you on this International Women's Day, as parliamentarians, if there's a message, a comment you want to make. Sarah? Yeah, our parliament has to reflect um, the community. And I've been in parliament for 12 years now, almost 12 years, and we need more women in there. We need more women in there to be a voice for the women in our communities. Um, politics is a rough place. Parliament is a rough place. But we don't change that culture um, by leaving it to the blokes. So if you want to get involved, please get involved. I don't care what political party, by the way. You know, I, we need more women in all of them because I think that would improve the situation a hell of a lot. Yeah. Rebecca? Look, I agree with everything Sarah said, but I, but I think we need to... If you live in a, in a safe seat, you need to ask whoever's the major party in that seat um, for them to consider a woman being in that seat into the future. Mm. Because if I look at the lower house, um, we have seen um, a, little, a, a little increase in uh, female representation in the House of Representatives, but it's mainly marginal seats. And so who I started the 45th Parliament with, many of them are not there anymore. Mm. And then we... The because they're thing, in marginal seats. They're in marginal seats, so they come and go. But while I reflect and think... International Women's Day, we have more women in the House of Representatives. The front bench is still a sea of suits. And in all three major parties, men hold the leadership position and the deputy leader position. And that's a great shame. I want to thank you both for coming on stage. Please thank, thank Rebecca Sharkey and Sarah Hanson-Young. Thank you. You are free to leave our stage. Thank you, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you. All right.
This is a bit like speed dating. We're going to take some of your questions now. Our, uh, we have six minutes. Our boss, where is she, Tanya, has a mic. Or someone has a mic. Does someone oh, have a mic? There's, there's a, a mic. There's a man with a mic. Um, and there's already a hand up, I think. Let's take that hand right there. Keep your questions tight. Tight. Thank you very much. It's been wonderful to hear both of you and see you both in person. I just wanted to ask Senator Hanson Young if she were still on stage. She said repeatedly that she gave the reference to assist the woman who had no voice. And yet I think I heard her say that the victim herself was given the opportunity to submit her um, reference, if you like. So I found that a little confusing. And I wonder why the Senator might not have reflected at the time whether... The, the lady should have been asked to consult her own legal advisers about the wisdom of having someone like Senator Hanson Young, so, who is so deeply involved in the issue, enter the fray. Well, look, Sarah's, I think Sarah's given us a fair whack of a time. She's not here. We can't put that to her. But I think the point is, as, as Patricia said earlier, this has really divided or brought out extreme responses from the left and the right. There is a lot of um, condemnation of it. And we heard Sarah Hanson Young's answer earlier. Yeah, they're her answers. And I'd love to see a woman put a hand it's up. It's International, International Women's Day, Day after all. Come on, here's some women. Here oh, there's are. a woman waving madly. Here's... Uh, oh, there we go. There. Hang on, wait for the Let's microphone. Let's get it on microphone. It's just an observation. The rationale, because the woman asked could be applied. Can I just say, look, I, I, I'm not trying to close down your question, but we only have five minutes, so without Sarah here, we can't really go okay, to I'm the question. I'm just saying same rationale, George Powell, St Kevin's, would she apply that same rationale if there'd been a charge of incest? It just doesn't make sense. Okay. But take, well, that is, that is a strong view that's been reflected, I think, by many feminists at the moment, which is why we ask the hard questions. There's a woman waving her arm Thank in you. the most elaborate way I've ever seen. That is like, that's like a concert wave. Thanks, Fran and Patricia. Great session. I just wanted to ask, what do you think is going to happen on the 23rd of March with Sally Steggall's bill? And have you seen any evidence of the modern Liberals trying to sway their party around this issue? Can I take the modern Liberals bit and then you take the mm -hmm. bill? Or, or you can... Yes, I think I have seen evidence of the modern Liberals flexing their muscles. my favourite term. Um, I think they've been a lot more outspoken than they were and there is a big discussion among them with people like Dave Sharma, Trent Zimmerman, there are others, uh, Kate, um, Katie um, from Higgins as Kate. well, who say yeah. we need to be advocating much more strongly inside our party for, for our view and to reflect our constituents. We've seen it and I expect we'll see more of it. I can only say on that front, so far we may have seen them speaking out finally but I don't think they have any muscle in that party room and I don't think it'll have any influence on the policy, but what I think they also hope it may influence is how people see them in their own seats, trying their hardest to get some influence. But I, I think clearly it's the other side of the, the politic that has the power, I think, within that party room at the moment. In terms of Zali's motion, I'm not actually clear um, whether it's even going to be allowed to be deba debated. Has the government agreed? I don't think the Zali-Stegel bill will get up. The truth is it's a game of maths. That's how politics works. And, uh, you know, the government's not going to support this bill even getting debated, let alone it getting up. I think the government's going to bring forward a number of other bills before then, for instance, bills on uh, the religious discrimination and perhaps on a national integrity commission, so it'll be getting put off and off. But that doesn't mean, I don't think... So I think that no, the chances of getting a climate commission a la Zali's bill are slim, I think, because I don't see a groundswell coming from Labor. I personally think a climate commission is a great idea. Let's take it out of the arms of politicians. And let's squeeze another question in. Uh, my question's on family violence more generally. Um, after the death of Hannah Clark and her children, there's been a lot of hand-wringing and candle-burning and stuff like that in Canberra. And... A lot of politicians have been saying, oh, we've got to do something about this, got to find some way of ending family violence. And yet it seems to me a lot of them are the same people that are sort of supporting changes to the family court, that are supporting a whole lot of other things that disadvantage women, cuts to um, direct services yeah. around family violence, etc., etc. Do you see any change happening and many, maybe any hope in 
um, amongst parliamentarians about really tackling um, violence against women? My view is all parties want to do something. They're, the government points to $800 million that has been invested in this, but that's over a number of years. And I think a very bad sign has been the parliamentary inquiry that has been allowed to be established with Pauline Hanson as the deputy. We don't need another inquiry. We have two. Sarah Henderson was chair of one. We've had another one from the Law Reform Commission. Those recommendations haven't been acted upon yet. We don't need another inquiry, and I think this next one is quite dangerous in the current climate. So um, I think it is wait time for the government uh, and the parliament as a whole to act. We do know the answers. The frontline workers know the answers. It is more money for the courts. The courts are getting bogged down. People are waiting too long. It's, um, it's more accommodation for women, not just crisis accommodation. That is urgent, but also longer-term supported accommodation options for women. And it is more working on the ground But I think there's been a shift. I do think there's been a shift. I've yes, covered but politics. Got, what's that going to turn into, no, PK? That, that's, that's the question. But the fact that the Prime Minister now addresses the issue of a murder of a woman, femicide, and the, and the children, like he does, is something that did not happen in the 20 years I've covered politics. Something has changed. Whether that will end in action, I'm not making a, a full prediction, but there has been a shift. The fact that the Prime Minister addresses this as if there has been a significant event that's happened in the country, I think that is a step in the right direction. We should encourage it more because this is domestic terrorism in the home. Yes, but politicians... And until politicians address it like he did and more of that, we need to encourage more of that. No, I agree. And domestic terrorism, I think, is a great description of it. But politicians have to keep... Stop saying, you know, we need to get to the bottom, we need to work out the answers. Those in the front line will tell you, we know what needs to be done. We just need governments to fund it. This is the end of our... Is this the end? This is the end. Thank you so much for we coming to the party room live. We wait all year from this and I would love to sneak in your questions, but if I don't say goodbye, someone's going to tell me off. Thank you so much to everybody. Thank you to Tanya Nolan, who has produced us. Thank you so much to all of the people who came. I'm Patricia Carvelis. I'm Fran Kelly. And make sure you download the party room. See you later. Thank you so much for joining us.